0: Well, the last few weeks we've been in this series called I Know a Guy, and uh, we looked at several different things. This is our, our sixth and final week of the series. We started calling it that because anytime you run into a situation where something breaks or something needs fixed or something needs some kind of attention and you don't know what to do, you always have someone. There's always a guy. You know a guy. And if you don't know a guy, you know a guy who knows a guy. Uh, so if you have car trouble, you know who you're going to call. If you have a plumbing issue or an electrical issue or whatever, uh, maybe you are everybody's guy. I don't know, but we all have a guy. And what we were focusing on was living in a, in a culture that is broken and uh, knowing that we have the ultimate salve to a broken culture. And we know a guy, and his name just happens to be Jesus. So we looked at a couple different topics. We started off Jordan walked us through essentially just uh, how do we live in a culture where even when we're on the same side, we don't agree sometimes. And how do we live civilly with one another? How do we live in a even a political climate where uh, we don't see eye to eye with the same people we say we line up with at times and and seem so polarizing different to the people that we're opposed to their ideas? How do we live in harmony with that? How do we... How do we live out the gospel in a culture that at times we just don't agree with any aspect of it? We talked about the sanctity of human life. We talked about how it's not just unborn babies that matter to God. It's all of human life. And if we're going to be pro-life, if we're going to be the people who, who trumpet that and hold high that ideal, then we need to hold high all of human life, not just the unborn uh, so, we talked about just the overarching sanctity of all of human life. We talked about sexual brokenness. We talked about how we live in a culture that has taken this amazing gift from God and made it uh, into something God never intended it to be. Uh, we talked about how, in the garden, there was a sequence that was given there was man there was a world that was created, and then man was created, and then woman was created, and then sex was given, and so it was in that order. And that order is important. And uh, we talked about how do we live in a world where we disagree. And we live in this world that has a, a sexual brokenness to it. And yet we hold the salve that fixes it. How do we go about that? Financial brokenness is what we talked about next. We talked about that from the angle of poverty and homelessness. And what can be our response to that? Last week, Adam came and talked about financial brokenness from the aspect of our own personal stewardship. How do we view our own stuff? How can we respond to the needs of the world if we have an unhealthy view of what we already have? Is it our stuff and we're giving God a chunk of it? Or is it all God's and we're just asked to maintain it for Him, to steward it for Him and for His purposes and for His pleasures? You might, notice, you might have noticed over the past few weeks that we didn't come to straight-up conclusions. We didn't spoon-feed answers to these tough questions. I believe that as the gospel deepens in us, there comes a time where from the pulpit we, don't, we shouldn't spoon-feed you what we're trying to say. We should pray that the gospel does its work in each one of our lives and convicts us of our response to these big issues. We want to preach the truth. We want to let God develop in you convictions on all of these matters. So the gospel is this salve to our broken culture. It's this salve that, uh, that fixes, fixes the brokenness of the culture that we live in. And we have been given this salve. We, we've, we've received it and we have benefited from it. The the salve has healed us of our brokenness, our, our distance from God, our separation from God. This salve called the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died on a cross on our behalf for sins that He did not commit, but we committed. And He did that to restore a relationship with His Father so that we could have access back to God. So we have this salve and we've been given not just the salve, but we've, been, we've received the benefits of it. And now we've been given the license to distribute that salve to a broken culture in which we live. Now, I had planned on speaking on something completely different leading up to this Sunday. But some events that transpired in my own life this past week uh, showed me a different course to take with the message And God was very gracious in giving that. So I think what we're doing here today is closing this sermon series out in a much more effective way than I could have ever written months ago whenever we settled on this topic. I want to look at Jesus for a second. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 19. This is a very famous interaction that Jesus has. Uh, He has several of these. Jesus lives in the midst of a broken culture too, by the way, when he's walking on the earth. If you're using the Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 605. I think only the first two verses of chapter 19 are in that that version, and then you'll switch over to 606, if I remember correctly. This is Jesus' interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus. So just follow along with me as I read this. Then we're going to break it down a little bit as to why this is important to what we've been talking about. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Verse 1 through 10 is what we're going to look at. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Remember, he was a, a wee little man. A wee little man was he, remember And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So many things could be spoken on when it comes to this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus. There are so many themes here that we could go with, but let's just go with what Jesus became known as. Jesus became known as a friend of sinners. Now, that phrasing can lead you down a dark path. It can lead you down a path to justify your actions. I have heard that phrasing go from Jesus' friend of sinners to Jesus' hung out with drunk people. And that's an interpretation thing, right? Right? What about Jesus makes you think he just hung out with drunk people? Like, do you think Jesus, if he was alive today, would just hang out with drunk people and film them on his phone and send Snapchats to his buddies about his drunk friends? Now, Jesus' friend of sinners means something completely different than justifying us spending time doing things and spending time with people in atmospheres and areas that we shouldn't be spending our time. Jesus' friend of sinners meant that he didn't look down on Zacchaeus because of his decisions, and he didn't look down on Zacchaeus because of uh, his financial lying and his deals that he had made. See, he was a chief tax collector, which meant there were tax collectors under him. So basically, the government would look at Zacchaeus and say, this is how much you need to collect. I don't care how much you collect, but this is what you need to give us. So he would take that much, and then he'd add his own commission to it. And then he'd go to his, his tax collectors under him and tell them, this is what you need to give me. I don't care how much you charge the people that you go and collect taxes from, but at the end of the day, when you turn in your taxes, this is what you give me. So he has this exorbitant amount, and then they inflate it to make their cut. That's why people hated tax collectors, because they were all shysters, right? I said, were I'm not talking present tense. But that's how it works. So nobody liked this guy. Nobody liked this guy. And he knew it. He was a short guy. uh, So when the crowds came to see Jesus, he couldn't find a spot, a good vantage point. So he he did what uh, was probably a very humbling thing for him. And he, he climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus. Hoping, probably... That Jesus would just walk on by and he could say, I saw Jesus. It's kind of like going to a victory parade. It's not like you get to jump on the float and hang out with the winning team. But you were there. You could say, I was there, right? Anyone go down to the city in 08 when the Phillies won? I know Roe did. So, I mean, you could say, I was there. I saw it. I went I saw the players go by. I was that close to them. That's all Zacchaeus wanted out of this. He wanted a good vantage point that when Jesus, this guy he had heard all about, came by, he could see him. That's what he wanted. Imagine the shock when Jesus, the man who everybody was there to see, crowds so deep that he couldn't see unless he climbed a tree. Jesus stops at that tree, looks up at this short guy who already had to swallow his pride a little bit to climb a tree looks up at him and says, Hey Zacchaeus, why don't you come out of the tree? You and I are going to go to your house. You're going to give me something to eat. We're going to hang out for a little bit. Wouldn't you think he was a little bit shocked by this interaction? Now, I want you to notice that that's all Jesus says to him. That's all he says to him. We don't have any record of anything else that Jesus says to him before he decides to give away his wealth before he decides to make right everything that he had made wrong. He had spent time with Jesus, and it completely changed his outlook on life. Jesus stepped into his reality. Jesus, in the midst of a broken culture, in the midst of a culture that looked at this guy as a second-class citizen and a a person who who was a, a problem to be solved, not a person to be loved, decided to just stop wherever he was going to go and however he was planning to get there and whatever he was on his way to do, it ceased being the most important thing in Jesus' life and Zacchaeus became the most important thing in Jesus' life in that moment. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how we are to live amongst a broken culture. You see, because the gospel is a transforming force. It's a a force that once it infects you, for lack of better words, it starts to do a work in you and through you. And you start to see the world differently. And you start to see people differently. And you start to love people instinctively. And you start to want to get sin flushed out of your life. It's a phenomenal thing that no one can explain. Apart from Jesus, there's a ministry that uh, that has been in existence for a while now down in Kensington. It's in uh, it's in a rough neighborhood right off Tioga. It's called Urban Hope. It's a Grace Brother ministry. There's a building on the corner. It's a three story building. Used to be a prostitution house and a crack house. Now I saw this building before before, and that's exactly what it was. It was a terrifying building. It it smelled horrible. It was in rough shape. There was constant, constant drug abuse and and sexual sin coming in and out of that house. Three stories and it stood right across the corner. So here's this beacon of hope in the community right here. And here's a three-story building that's just chock full of sin day and night all the time right there. And wouldn't you know it, that building came up for sale. And somebody generously provided the funds for that ministry to buy it. Now, if you go down to the down to that corner and you look at the buildings, the building looks from the outside pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. But what comes out of that building now is young adults who spend two years of their college life, spending uh, their whole. Two years of college, living there amongst the people in the city and learning how to love the people in the city and minister to the people in the city. And they bring the love of Jesus out of that building and into that building and into that neighborhood now. Same building. Same building. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does in us. You see, when you receive Christ, you don't look in the mirror in the morning and be like, Oh, I lost 40 pounds. That's great. My hair's growing back. I'm not gray anymore. Hey, look, my knees work again. This is awesome. Wow, my memory came back. Hey, all my financial problems are fixed. Oh, look, I'm healthy again. The cancer's gone. Thank you, Jesus. You see, when we receive Christ as a transforming force in our lives, the outside is most likely going to look exactly the same. But the product that is coming out of you is completely different. It's completely different. When you're down in Kensington at night and you're wearing a a green hoodie that says Urban Hope, you, you feel like you're walking around in a bulletproof vest because they have garnered a respect in that neighborhood. It doesn't feel unsafe. I've walked around the city in that section at night with junior high kids. I don't tell their parents what we're doing until after we get back, but. And if you're down there during the day and you don't know anything about it and you don't know anything about the city, most of you who live close by probably stay as far away from that section of the city as possible for a myriad of different reasons. This is a group of people that have been flocking there to a building that used to house a whole lot of sin. After they bought it, I was in the building. Dusty was in the building uh, as they were doing the demo work, and it was disgusting. I mean, I wish I could come up with some more colorful words for what that building looked like whenever they started doing the demo work. And to see what it looks like today is a completely different thing. Now, what I'm not sharing that as, as, a, as a huge plug for the ministry, although I have a lot of respect for it. I'm saying that because this building is a beautiful picture of what the gospel does in and through each one of us. So let me ask you the question. Is the gospel deepening in your life? Is that leading to lifestyle change? Or is it just... Something you say you do. Look at Acts chapter 4 with me. Acts is an amazing book of the Bible. I encourage you, if you're looking for something to just read through, start at verse 1 in chapter 1 and just start reading. And take notes of all the things that are happening because it's just a constant snowball of stuff that's happening in the early church. just explosion of the gospel left and right lessons learned and and action taken. It's on page 630. If you're looking at the the Bible, it's in front of you there. Listen to this. This is in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 1, read through verse 22. Peter and John are before the council here. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astounded. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Remember that. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. See, this right here is a boldness that can only be defined and only be explained by the work of the gospel in us. By the work of Jesus in us. A couple key points that we need to pull out of this. When they look at these guys and they hear this boldness from Peter. You see, we know Peter as Peter. If you grew up in the Catholic faith, he's a saint. He's the one that's standing at the pearly gates, letting you in or not. Peter's a big deal, right? We hold him at a very high regard. We have to understand how these leaders would have looked at Peter. These leaders would have looked at Peter like the guy who's been out for 12 hours collecting garbage on the back of a truck. It's not that they disrespected the fact that he did that for a living. It's just they didn't respect him enough to give him any credence to what he had to say. I mean, he's uneducated. He's working that job because he doesn't have the same privileges that I had. That's the kind of view they would have of him. You see, Peter was a fisherman, and they all knew it. So verse 13 is remarkable when you look at it from their point of view. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, because Peter says some pretty bold things there, doesn't he? When he looks at them and he says, This Jesus who you crucified, who you rejected, that he raised himself from the dead, and there is under no other name of which, by which men can be saved. So when they saw the boldness of Peter John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Next part. Get this. This is massive. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Yeah, he's a common fisherman, but this dude just spent three years of his life walking side by side with Jesus. There has to be... They're starting to make some correlations here. They thought they got rid of Jesus once and for all. But wait a second. This guy is so bold and is telling us this stuff. There's 5,000 people that just converted over to their teaching, standing outside our doors right now. 5,000. That's like a well-attended Sixers game. So there's a ton of people outside who had just given over to this teaching of Jesus. Now, they're in a real quandary because we could flog them and and beat them up and then send them out to those 5,000 as a signal. But wow, we've got 5,000 people that disagree with us now. And they're standing outside. And they've done nothing wrong. Like, we we don't have anything against them. We're just annoyed. We're bothered. We don't have any leg to stand on here. We've got to let them go. So they pull out whatever influence they've got left. And they say, listen, You can go, but don't you dare talk about Jesus again. And Peter and John look and say, judge for yourself whether we should obey you or obey God. But we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And essentially tell them, those 5,000 people out there, buckle up. Because they're going to go do the same thing. And this thing's going to grow. So, look, love, fellas, your world's coming to a close real fast. Why would I bring that up after all of this? Because amidst all of this duress, amidst all this calamity in their lives, they're standing before the, the same men who brutally murdered Jesus. These men are the ones who plotted against Jesus to make sure he died. These are the same guys. And Peter and John know that. They saw the whole thing go down. They saw the evidence of a bloody Jesus hanging on a cross. They know what these men are capable of doing when you disagree with them. They know what they're up against. And in the midst of that, they look them in the eye and they don't give them the proverbial you know, middle finger of life that says, no, my God's bigger than you and I don't have to listen to you and you're stupid and I'm smart. There's no arrogance about what they're saying. What they're saying is, this is a life transformative message for us and I know it's true. I want you to believe it too. That's essentially what they're saying. So you judge for yourself. You've been in the law your whole life. You judge for yourself if you think it's better for us to obey you than to obey God. But we're not going to obey you. They respectfully do this to these same men. They stand up against them and they say, I'm sorry, but no, you're not the number one. Jesus is. So amidst that, in the face of it, they still furthered the gospel. My whole family got the flu this week. Like literally every one of us, including my very pregnant wife. She's to the point now where she doesn't know whether she's going into labor or just still has the flu. We were all sick. We were all miserable. And when you have that, you sort of like put the tape out in front of your house and make a quarantine zone, right? Stay away, right? I was outside and the mailman came and he was like, hey, and went to him in my mail. And I was like, You just want to put it in the box. I'll grab it in a little bit. You don't want to spread it. So what did we do as a family? We made sure we were comfortable. We had plenty of juice. We had uh, plenty of blankets. We were all in our pajamas pretty much the whole time. Uh, There were a lot of hot showers taken. Uh, The couch got used well. We watched more movies and more Netflix than we have in probably the last six months combined. Why? Because when you're sick, you don't want to spread it to the people around you. You don't want to give it to anybody. And you just need to be comfortable because everything else feels miserable. You just want to be as comfortable as you can and just let your body heal. So that's what you do. You, you eat you know whatever you can eat, whether it's chicken noodle soup or whatever. And you just, you just get comfortable and you sit and you let your, your family heal. It was miserable. It was miserable. Not much sleep happens. I mean, it's, it's really gross, right? Why would I tell you that? Except for this. I was sitting in my house the other day, miserable. Chills, you know, wrapped up in a blanket. I look over on the couch. My wife's the same posture. At that point, Jack didn't have it. So he's just like rolling around like a, a crazy person on the floor. Isaiah's is at school at this point, back at school, and Toby is just a mess with the rest of us. And I realize that far too often the way I'm interacting with the flu is how I interact with the gospel. I keep it to myself because I don't want to spread it to others. I make sure I'm very comfortable. I make sure I have all the modern comforts that I need. I make sure that I have all the sustenance that I need. I make sure that my family is with me. I make sure that, that I have a comfortable couch to sit on. I make sure that my surroundings make me feel good. And then I just take all that that I've got and I keep it to myself because I don't want anybody else to have it. So I take this life-giving message and I treat it like it's a plague. I treat it like it's a disease. I treat it like it's going to get somebody else sick. I don't live within the power and the bounty that comes from the gospel. I don't live within that. I still walk down a sinful path. I still choose my own way. I still do whatever I want. I still want my own comfort before I want what Jesus wants. I still want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. Period. And if anyone catches that along the way, well, praise God, maybe they'll come to our church. So we just live in this comfortable quarantine zone our entire lives. We put on our nice clothes and we come to church and we sing a few songs and we hope and pray that other people come, that we can have a nice sign and a nice website and that will get people in the door. And I go home and I live however I want. I live like I'm living in a quarantine zone. And I take the beauty and the power of the gospel and I put it on a shelf and I say, man, am I glad I have that. And this beautiful message that gives life to the world around us. You see, we haven't just been given the salve that fixes the world around us. We haven't just been given the license to distribute it. We have been given the command to distribute it. So we can know a guy. If we never call him, nothing ever gets fixed. So yeah, it's a stark reality. We live in a world where we don't agree with everybody around us. We live in a world that you can politically say yes or politically say no, but there's almost no in between. You can live in a world where babies can be murdered uh, and and refugees can be cast away like they don't matter And we treat human beings like we treat dirty rags. We can live in that world and we can know that's a reality. We can live in a world where we know God has given this amazing gift of sex and we can trample it. We can see it happen around us. We cannot pray. We cannot. We can just, yeah, whatever. I know what God's standard is. I don't care. I know what God said. I don't care. We can live in a world that is financially broken and we can see poverty and homelessness around us and we can do nothing. We can live in a world where we have so much bounty and give so little. That's the world we can choose to live in. That is how we have lived as a church in America for far too long. See, the gospel is transformative. Transformative. It's doing a work in us. It's just constantly deepening the more you desire to understand it. You'll, you'll find yourself doing irrational things like Zacchaeus did because he spent time with Jesus. Zacchaeus bankrupted himself to pay back people he stole from. If Zacchaeus had any friends, I'm sure some of them would have pulled him aside and said, Dude, We appreciate this whole Jesus thing you're talking about, but what you're doing is kind of crazy. Like, you're not going to have anything left. And the only difference in his life was Jesus. Completely different. The man on the road to Emmaus at the end of the book of Luke spent the whole day walking seven miles back to their house and realized they'd spent time with Jesus, and they get up and run back to Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because they would spent time with Jesus and they wanted other people to know. I don't know what your response to the gospel will be. But no response is not the gospel. If your life is not transforming, if you don't find a desire to sin less, if you don't feel conviction in your life to be more like Jesus on a regular basis, this gospel thing you say you have You might not have it. We can't lie to ourselves. Convincing ourselves that morality is all that matters. or We're nice people and we're kind. We attend church. We read our Bibles and we pray. That's not enough. Because if that stuff isn't attached to a deepening desire and a love for Jesus inside us, then we'll just continue to live within a broken culture and be broken ourselves. The difference between knowing the gospel and not knowing the gospel is accepting the fact that you're broken and that Jesus is the only one that can fix you. And once you have that salve, you take it to the rest of the world that knows that they're broken too. You don't try to sell them on it. You live it out in front of them. You pray for ways to show the love of Jesus to those around us. And we pray constantly constantly that God deepens our desire. We have to make Jesus 100% all to us, not just a part, all of it. God, thank you that you give us the freedom to talk to you, the freedom to walk down a path that maybe you wouldn't even deem worth our time, a path that is sinful at times. God, you, you allow us to walk in directions that are not best for us, And in that, hopefully, we see your grace, we see your mercy, we see your response that is true and honorable, and we run towards it. We see you, and we want you. God, we're going to have questions. We're not going to get it perfect. We're going to screw it up sometimes. But your grace saved us from the pit of our sin. So I know your grace can save us when we mess up. Your grace conquered sin for all time, past, present, and future. So I know when I screw up, your grace can fix me. Your grace can cover me. I know that's true. So God, may we be the people who don't live to take advantage of that grace, but live in it and live with a burning desire to show it to all those we come in contact with. May you 100% truly be all to us.